welcome back to the third, fourth episode now of the voiceover talks podcast my name is scott tenix i have a bit of a cold today so i do sound a little bit bunged up apologies in advance this week's guest is joining me from quite literally the other side of the world but that didn't stop him from winning best male voiceover at the uk one voice awards in london for two years running he founded the new zealand voice academy almost 10 years ago and has voiced for some of the biggest brands in the world joining us all the way from northland new zealand is the extremely talented toby ricketts just take listen to this. Born from the womb of the earth, mother, Papatuanuku, a great mountain range rises high towards the realms of Ranganui, the Sky Father. So we remain unbound to create the next big thing. Vertiv. Wherever your mission takes you, communication is critical. It's essential to everything you do. Raise your hand if you want pure freedom. The story of Kohler unfolds across generations. It's an entrepreneurial story of passion and drive, and a human story of lifting one another to a more gracious life. If you are the prototype, if you are to no one alike, then you are BMW Individual. Wow. Toby, thanks so much for joining me this week and a very good morning to you. Thank you very much. Which feels quite strange to say at 10 p.m. here in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> it does, doesn't it? It's often quite quite a quite a, a mind game, uh, connecting with clients around the world and coming to them from uh, the day ahead of where they are. <laughs> well, thank you for taking the time out of your day to come and speak with me. And we just had listened to some of your work and wow, what a magnificent voice. I'm convinced you have a wardrobe of Toby clones where each one grew up in a different part of the world and you occasionally let them out to voice for you when needed. Um, not in just in terms of accents, but the tone and, and timbre of your voice is just so different in every single one. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it's um, it's I guess it's one of those things you build up as a voice artist. You you find new areas of your voice. Um, once you become comfortable with one, you can kind of move on to another one. So, and I'm I'm a bit of an obsessive around accents and uh, and finding different voices. I've always been amazed at those people, those actors who can like conjure up and like Seth MacFarlane, who can literally sound like a completely different person. And I feel like with the physiological anatomy that we're given, anyone is able to do that. It's just a case of finding the will to do it within your brain. Before we get into voiceover, you're also a professional photographer, Hmm. a director and a filmmaker too. So just tell us a bit about this side of your work. Well, I I kind of wanted to move to the country. Like I had a big life change, uh, kind of centred around the Christchurch earthquakes, which happened, uh, what is it, about 10 years ago in 2011. Yeah. um, Where sort of everything got, there was a huge earthquake in Christchurch and everything got sort of destroyed. And I had a recording studio down there. So life kind of took took a back seat for a little while while everyone was getting over that. And it was a really good chance to sort of reassess everything. So I moved to a different city and I sort of, you know, wanted to ultimately get into something in broadcasting, but I wanted to try lots of different things. So I started lots of different sort of side shoots and I, uh, I got myself a camera and um, took photos um, and I also did video on top of that as part of the sort of digital SLR revolution that happened about 10 years ago where, you know, somebody, anyone, anyone with a camera could, um, could become a filmmaker. And I sort of tried to do lots of different things to sort of earn a living from all of these things collectively, but also just to sort of, you know, experiment with different things. And many of those things kind of over time came to fruition. 
um, including being an online voiceover artist, which has kind of eclipsed everything else now <laughs> because it's been <laughs> definitely my most successful offshoot. But I still do like to try out these skills of holding a camera, directing. Sometimes I've directed some music videos um, and I've did some documentary filmmaking probably about six or seven years ago where I won the best emerging filmmaker at a, a film, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, film competition, which was quite cool. And I've always kind of believed that it's really good to have a diverse set of skills, especially if you can vertically integrate them. So I use my filmmaking skills and my editing skills all the time when I'm cutting together my voice demos, for example. Yeah. So, you know, it's a very um, it's a very cross-pollination kind of uh, skill to have. And, and what an amazing part of the world to be able to do that as well. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful where you are. It is rather special, yeah. So how did you first discover the world of voiceover and how did your career start and eventually transition into full time voiceover? Well, it depends how far back you want to go. My, <laughs> my first um, foray into sort of recording my voice was actually when I was eight years old. Oh, wow. Um, and I was living in Brighton uh, on the south coast of England, as you know. And um, I had a friend, uh, Simon Hardwick, who's now gone on to work at BBC Television Centre. But he and I used to go to like events, like when the BBC would do a roadshow to come to town or there'd be an opening of some building. We'd go along with a, a a cassette recorder and a micro, an external microphone, and he'd be there, the, the sort of you know the man of the moment, uh, you know, interviewing people <laughs> and stuff, and I'd be like the, the the operator holding the tape player and occasionally chiming in with my two cents. <laughs> so that's really where it started, and then from there I got really obsessed with audio. I used to go to jumble sales and um, pick up uh, sort of cassette players and take them apart, and and I built a studio in my in my room when I was eight years old. So it really does go back like that far. Um, but then I was I was always much more comfortable being behind the glass. So I was much more comfortable being the operator, um, being the editor, sort of, you know, someone who was not necessarily the personality out in front there. And it's really kind of like it's 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 been a passion of mine really throughout my entire life. But I'd say voiceover specifically, I kind of transitioned into it from being the guy behind the glass and making tens of thousands of commercials with other people's voices into slowly getting in there myself and doing it where I, I used to work at the radio stations. Um, well, I basically worked at radio stations ever since I left high school. But then I sort of transitioned into owning my own studio, as I said, in Christchurch, and basically transitioning out of a recording studio situation into just having my own studio for my voiceover work. So it's basically been a, a career that started in radio, uh, then went into recording and then into voiceover. And a lot of people find transitioning from radio can be quite difficult moving into the world of voiceover because although there are many similarities, they are very different arts in many respects as well. Absolutely. Was that something that you found at all or was it quite natural for you? Um it was quite natural. I do think it is It is a good breeding ground for voiceovers radio in terms of it gets you f- familiar with being behind the mic and being in that unnatural environment that is a soundproof room. Because, you know, most people, when they put headphones on and they hear their voice in this deadened room, it, it really freaks them out because it's such an unnatural thing. But most people, if they stay in radio too long, then they start sounding a bit like this all the time. And then suddenly they can't stop talking like this. And so, like, there's, there's a really nice natural piece of copy. And, and they'll just barrel into it with this kind of voice. And it's suddenly it's like, oh, dear. And deprogramming that, in my experience with the Voice Academy, is, is really difficult. It's very hard to stop someone talking it like that when they've a- adopted that character, if you like. So that is the pitfall with coming from radio. One of the, the, the things that I'll do with my students is to get them to get rid of all prosody and all color from a script and just simply read it like this, like they're really, really bored in a single monotone, and then build up the prosody from there because it can be such a powerful thing. It's a bit like silence. You know, if you, if you really leave space in something, then it can be much more powerful than something read quickly. 
And I think it's the same for like dynamic variation and and the prosody in what you're reading. If you strip it right out, it can be a lot more powerful than adding more in. You know, less is more. So yeah, it's 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 definitely one of those levers that is important to master as a voiceover is how much of that color you're adding and whether it's sort of too much. Because especially in these days, you know, every brief seems to come through these days saying not announcery at all, no announcer voices, <laughs> get me away from the announcer voices. Um, so it's been a radical shift in the last sort of you know five six years away from that kind of traditional voiceover sound into a much more natural kind of poetic delivery. So that's something that um, you know I, I I try and teach voiceovers a lot because that's going to be much more applicable in today's environment. Yeah, absolutely, and that's a really interesting way of looking at it, breaking a voice down like that and, and building it back up again. I, I really like that. Now, you've become a master of global accents, and in particular, I know you specialise in British accents. You've won numerous awards at the UK One Voice Awards in recent years, again, for work that's not your native accent, which I think is absolutely amazing. And many voiceovers and coaches advise against this, and they say stuff like, you know, if a client wants an American accent, they'll go to an American voiceover. But clearly, that advice is nonsense, or is at least not always the case. What are your thoughts on this? And how has offering global voices played a part in forming your career into what it is today? Well, I wouldn't say it's nonsense um, from coaches, but I think you have to be very careful because if you go to market with a product that's not like a native accent, if you say I can do a native American accent and then you turn up and you can't do it, then they will forever remember your name with can't do American accent. You know, So you have to be ready when you go to market to actually be like a local, to sound like a local. I mean, in my experience of, of people on my courses, there are sort of people who are accent sponges and those that, that aren't. You know, There are people who are fascinated by accents and the way people talk and can change easily the way that they talk. And there are people that, that just, that no matter how hard they try, they always just revert to what they've done all their life. So I think if you're in, in the former category, an in, in accent sponge, and you find it easy to do accents, then it's something that, worth pursuing because it's kind of like there's people that find learning languages easy and um, some people that, that just find it impossible like me. So I think if you're an accent sponge, then definitely have a go at it. But there's also like a really important definition I make where you know there is what's called a party accent. So you know I can go to a party and do a great Irish accent and everyone's like, oh, that's so funny, you can do an Irish accent. But if I did that to an Irish person, they would probably smack me in the face. <laughs> so, like, it's very important to distinguish between doing a professional accent and doing a party accent. Um, you can start with a party accent, but you do need formal training from someone who is local and who knows the dialect and who knows the accent inside out so they can really point out wh- what you're doing yeah, wrong. Yeah. Um, and and then getting feedback from, from locals, from people who you want to convince that you are from that place. And it's just working on that until you reach a level where you are comfortable that, you know, you can go into a session and they won't be able to tell where you're from. So it really is a whole nother layer that you have to add on top of everything else that you're already doing or that you've already learned as a voiceover artist. Wow. Obviously, you've worked with some huge global brands, you know, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Samsung, BMW. I mean, clients don't really get much bigger than that. But what is your proudest voiceover achievement to date? There was one that I did back in 2017 for Facebook. It was when Facebook launched their Workplace product. And I did a voiceover for that. And while it it was actually a big learning curve for me, that the, the job in terms of how to charge for voiceover, because it was a job that was on one of the pay-to-plays, and it was actually kind of, for the size of the commercial, 
it was chronically underpaid, but I didn't find out until I was in the session that it was for Facebook. So it was one of those awkward moments where it was like, oh, okay, well, this should be charged a lot more. But you don't bring it up in the session, obviously. It's one of those kind of awkward things. But it's really nice to do that kind of work. Like, while it didn't pay monetarily, it paid in the sense that it was some of the nicest copy I've ever read. And the ad was produced to such a beautiful standard that it really kind of told me that I could work at this level if you know what I mean. And I think those jobs are really important when you get one and you think, wow, I'm actually I'm actually doing this. I'm a real voiceover artist, <laughs> you know, which you need to remind yourself of sometimes because it's like there are different trophic levels within voiceover, I feel like, where there's the, sort of the entry level where you're just, you know, picking up the odd sort of bit of work and some of it might be not paid, sort of reading for the blind, that kind of thing, and really just getting your basic skills. And then slowly going up the ladder through sort of things like e-learning, which might not pay that much, or doing the odd sort of local commercial on, on some radio station into sort of more national work and then ultimately there's kind of international work and then sort of you know the sort of super exclusive international work on top of that and I feel like you don't know about these levels until you start to get to the top of the level you're in you know it's a bit like a like one of those pyramid schemes like Scientology (laughs) or something where you know it's like you only get to find out about the next level until you're up in this level and it does feel a lot like that in, in, in a way and some of the work I've done recently like I was hired to be the voice of the World Health Organization response to COVID-19 last year Wow, which was quite a big sort of honor in terms of it was, you know, it was like the entity that was in charge of health on the biggest crisis we've had on health for the last hundred years wanted me to sort of, you know, do this voiceover. So that was a really interesting challenge because it needed to be a truly global accent. So they wanted a bit of American, a bit of British and some Asian in there as well. So it had elements of all this different accents sort of fused together. And it was, you know, tight turnarounds and it was working remotely and all kinds of different challenges associated with it. And that piece of work came off really nicely. And I was that had sort of 10 million views in the first 12 hours, which was quite surprising. So that was a nice piece of work as well. Oh, amazing. I'll be sure to put a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, What's the biggest challenge you think the industry faces at the moment? I think um, the biggest challenge the voiceover industry faces currently is this issue of pricing and how much the client makes known when you're going for the job. You know, one of my big caveats now when I quote is that this fee will be confirmed on confirmation of who the client is, which I think is a very reasonable thing because it's like your voice is being associated with this possibly giant corporation or tiny entity who knows what it is but you know so often um, on the pay-to-play sites it's posted as you know corporate video which is interestingly what that um, Facebook video was posted as it was just corporate video which I mean technically it was (laughs) but it's also you know above the line advertising for the biggest company in the world so um, you know it, it changes things a lot but I think it's important that voices educate themselves on what their voice is worth and come up with what they feel their voice is worth at a minimum level and don't ever go below that because that gives you real power and agency over what work you do and it makes the decisions a lot easier rather than kind of deciding on, oh, shall I do this? And deciding what your caveats are, what you will voice and what you won't voice, for example. Based on that Facebook experience that I had back in 2017, like I say, it was a pivotal job for me, not only because it was a big commercial, but because it completely changed the way I priced voice because until that moment, I hadn't really been doing voiceover at that level. And so I thought, well, how do you charge for stuff at this level? So, you know, it's the same amount of work for me to do that Facebook ad that goes out to, I don't know, 100 million people as it is to do something for the lawyer down the road. It's the same amount of time. So from people looking into the voiceover industry, they say, well, 
you're doing the same amount of work. Like, what difference does it make? You know, I, I pay a builder the same to build this house as this house. You know, it doesn't matter what the use is. But, of course, there's a key difference, which is the exploitation factor of your voice. And it really boils down to the fact of how much value is being extracted from your voice in that commercial, right? For example, you know, a big corporation posting it to millions of followers, they're getting a lot of financial and social credit from using my voice to go to those people. Whereas, you know, the the sort of, you know, lawyer in the local town who's going to post it to his YouTube channel and maybe get 20 views over the next 12 months is not extracting the same amount of value from, from your voice that, that the, the former was. So that's the big key difference. And so when you start to break that down, you think, well, how can I, you know, I, I could ask for a profit and loss statement from Facebook to determine their value and use some kind of algorithm to figure out how much I should be paid. Or you could sort of just break it down into very simple categories. So what I landed on was to have four tiers of voiceover um, for all the different categories, so web, TV, and radio. And tier one is like a, is, is a charity rate. So that's literally like a, like a, a, a charity, not necessarily non-profit, because those guys sort of pay themselves quite a lot sometimes, but a genuine charity that I believe in. So it's basically a donation rate. So it's like, you know, 250 US dollars and, you know, you can use it for whatever you want kind of thing because I, I'm basically donating to your cause by you, by you using my voice. So that's like a kind of a, a, a gimme tier. Then the kind of first business tier is basically a business. So that's like a company that has one office and up to 25 employees. So it's like a small business, a startup, if you like. And then my rates start from like a certain point there. So I won't do anything under that for that's for a commercial purpose. Then the next tier is if they have multiple offices, but in the same country. So they're like a nationwide brand, effectively. And then the top tier I've got is an international brand, which means the company has a presence in more than one country. So they have multiple offices around the world. And that's a really easy and kind of granular way to very quickly tell how big a company is and how much you should be charging for them. Because if they can afford to have like offices in multiple countries, then they're at the level where they can afford to pay you properly for your voice. And the problem with, you know, they, they've been talking recently about charging per 100,000 views or that kind of thing. But the problem with that is if I was a client and I um, used someone's voiceover on a video and I posted it to, to online and thought, this will probably get 10,000 views, and suddenly overnight it blows up and has, you know, 20 million views, I'm suddenly up for about 20 times what I originally thought my cost was. And I don't have any control over that. Like, that's literally beyond my control, especially when the video gets downloaded and reposted again, you know, which is the other factor about in this new age of anything going online being online forever, basically, how can you charge residuals when the control of the content is lost by the client as soon as they post it to the internet? So I did a, um, a, a voiceover for BMW a few years ago, and within six hours of it being posted, all the car magazines had downloaded it and reposted it to their own accounts. So then it's like if I charge BMW, you know, on an annual basis for that, how do I get them to take all of those videos down? Like that suddenly becomes an absolute nightmare for the client and they won't use me again. So the way I have kind of rationalized that within my pricing structure is that if it's paid placement, i.e. if it's being paid to be played somewhere, so it's pre-rolls or it's broadcast or it's, you know, they're, they're paying to have it posted, then residuals apply. But if it's purely organic and it just goes on the internet, then residuals don't apply. So that's, that's kind of a new way of doing things and it's kind of controversial. Um, but really, like, I'm just being a realist in terms of, you know, it, the control of it is lost as soon as it's posted to the internet. I mean, I proved that myself because as soon as I see my work posted by, you know, Lexus last week, um, I, I download it myself to, to have to my collection. But I could very easily repost that, and I sometimes do, to my account. 
Um, so, you know, it's, yeah, in- inherently control is lost as soon as it's posted to the internet. Yes, and that's a really interesting way of looking at things. And certainly it makes the job of pricing from your point of view as an artist much easier and, and more transparent for the client. Mm. But you're absolutely right in that the online space is evolving so quickly. And so some of the more traditional pricing models just don't quite work for online usage anymore because the internet is just so much more than it was even even just five or ten years ago. Exactly. So moving on a bit, uh, this next question is not strictly voiceover related, but I have to ask it and I hope that's okay. But while searching Google in uh, preparation for this interview, a headline popped up that I had to double take on that was next to your name. And it read, world's first ever legal pastafarian wedding <laughs> takes place in New Zealand. <laughs> and, and this was accompanied by uh, a photo of you with a handful of raw spaghetti <laughs> and I, I believe your now wife with a, a colander on her head. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Can you please tell us some more? <laughs> yes. Interesting story. So <laughs> it's very true. I am the uh, the first uh, pastafarian to be married officially in a pastafarian uh, ceremony. Um, it, it, it happened back in, it must have been 2017, sometime around that time. Um, I, I'd been making a documentary for a number of years back when I was sort of doing more of the filmmaking. There was a film I was making called God Doesn't Pay Tax, which was about the fact that religious institutions and their companies and all their associated costs are completely tax-free which in the modern context, most people find quite savory and, uh, you know, and, and, and don't think should happen. But it's not really well known about. So it's kind of there's this knife edge between, um, you know, whether religions should have to pay tax or whether, like everyone else or whether they should be you know, allowed to not pay tax. And so as part of this documentary, I, I started looking at all these different religions, um, including the somewhat satirical religions, <laughs> such as Pastafarianism or the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, uh, which is its <laughs> official title. And in talking to the uh, to the officiating person in New Zealand from the they they were about to have the first wedding uh, of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster in the world because New Zealand had granted um, them official church status with here in New Zealand, and there was a couple flying over from Germany to be the first people in the world to be married by the Flying Spaghetti Monster. And I wanted to film it, so I was like right up there, and then on the flight over. This couple had an outrageous row, obviously, and they broke up before they got to New Zealand. So the person, the person, the officiator, um, Karen was her name, the, the chief pirate, she uh, said, well, I'm sorry, it's off because they, they've broken up. And the next people in line who are going to get married don't want any cameras and they, they want to have a very quiet ceremony, just me and them, basically. And I was like, well, that's rubbish. <laughs> and so I said, well... I've got a girlfriend. Um, <laughs> could we get married instead? <laughs> so um, basically, we with two weeks, well, two weeks in total, we managed to find a pirate ship. Uh, we managed to um, get a motley crew of pirates together, and we pulled together the ceremony just out of nothing with no budget. And it must have been a slow news week because we invited some press along, and the Associated Press turned up, and then everyone in the world syndicated that story, including the BBC <laughs> and Reuters and the LA Times and the New York. We were like. On the on the on the cover of every website for about twenty four hours because nothing else was going on, obviously. And um, yeah, it was just it was it was like the most fun wedding anyone had ever been to because everyone you had to come in full pirate costume, so you had to like hire a full pirate costume, and then we li- literally took to the sea on an actual pirate ship, a wooden pirate ship, um, all drinking, and it was it was just a, an absolutely rip roaring um, wedding affair, really. <laughs> 
It's very different. Did your wife take much convincing, no. or was it uh, not really? We we wouldn't have been married any other way. I don't think. Like we didn't really believe in the in the institution of marriage, shall we say? Um, so we just thought, well, it's a great excuse for a party, and it's a pretty good story to tell our kids. So <laughs> it's uh... an amazing story. And the best part um, about the article that I read was this little snippet at the end, which read, "Let me see if I got it here." It says. The Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster is officially recognised as a religious organisation. Members are legally entitled to wear a colander as religious headgear in passport and driver's licence photographs. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Please tell me you took full advantage of that. I haven't, actually. That's true. I, I should probably amend my voiceover um, photographs as well to include it. <laughs> <laughs> There's always chance when you renew then. Um, but what an amazing story. It is. It's not too bad. And anyone, feel free to just Google it and, uh, and, and look up, because there's some great photos that came of the day. Um, <laughs> You founded and you currently run the New Zealand Voice Academy and you were asked to head up the Grave for the Brain Oceania division as well. That's right. Tell us a bit about this and, and what you do with each of these and, and how it came about. Absolutely. Well, when I ran a recording studio back in Christchurch, um, we were quite frequently approached by people who said, voiceovers, I've always wanted to get into that. Um, how do I sign up? And you'd be like, well, have you done anything before? And they'd be like, no, I want to be a voiceover artist. And you say, well, we can't really let you do it if you haven't done it before. And they're like, yeah, but I, I want, how am I supposed to do it if I haven't done it before? Do you know what I mean? Like it's a chicken and egg situation. So we thought, well, let's add a stepping stone in there so that people can have a go, see if they like it. And if they like it, give them some, you know, give them some something recorded that they can give to people um, who are in the industry um, and say, look, this is me recording an ad. So that's how it was born effectively. And that was back in, it was about 15 years ago, probably, or 2007. And then it sort of went through a few different versions back at the old studio in Christchurch. And then I resurrected the idea. Uh, it was probably about yeah seven or eight years ago um, in Auckland and started running you know regular um, voice academy uh, training. And it's been hugely popular in terms of like people. And the thing that's really surprised me about the voice academy is that people come along wanting to kind of be a voiceover or wanting to use their voice. And they don't necessarily leave and go off to be professional voiceover artists. You know, lots of people have other stuff going on. So, you know, they, they, they um, you you know, it, it, it takes a lot of time to become a professional, a professional voiceover artist. Mm. I compare it to someone saying, like, I want to be a concert pianist. And then them turning up to, like, some kind of public piano and then being like, right, I'm going to play this piano. <laughs> and, I, you know, you can make noise on a public piano, but you can't play it like a concert pianist can play it. That takes, you know, 10,000 hours of practice. So it's effectively the same. So this gives people a go, the Voice Academy, to, to sort of, you know, have a, have, a, have a tinkle on the keys and play with their voice a bit. But they come away with that having learned something fundamental about their voice. Like they suddenly have agency over this instrument they've been carrying around and they can, you know, use it on the phone when they're talking to people. They can use it in person to appear more confident than maybe they are. You know, once you have control over, over your voice, which is the way that most of us communicate with all the other humans in our life, it gives you this huge power over yourself. So most people, I should say 90% of them, leave with that knowledge and they are absolutely stoked and happy with that. And it's brilliant and it really adds value to their lives. Then there's about 5% that give the voiceover thing a go and somehow run out of steam. And then there's 5% who give it a go and they rock at it and they are working as full-time voiceover artists now. The voiceover training gets a lot of stick because the um, the more kind of um, cynical uh, voiceover artists who are working sort of think, oh, they're just letting in the the rebel now, you know, all my years of craft, all down the toilet, all these young'uns coming in. But the, the fact is that there's so much more work around than there was five years ago that we need more voiceover artists to do that kind of, that, that entry-level work so that the existing voiceover artists can kind of move up the food 
chain, if you know what I mean. Like, there's got to be a um, a succession plan for for voiceover artistry, and it's kind of a bit stink to like have this ladder up thing of like, well, I'm a voiceover artist now, so I'm not going to train anymore because you know that's why I work on. It, as long as you're training people like up behind you, I find it keeps you really hungry and keeps you improving as well. And I think it's a really healthy thing for the industry to be constantly improving, which is why I have this philosophy of basically giving away my knowledge for free for the most part because I feel like it leads to a much better industry overall and more people in it. You know, and you do uh, you do paid coaching as well, don't you? You know, one on one sessions yep, yep. Uh, online as well. Absolutely, yes. I mean, I don't really put much emphasis on that. I do it if people want to do it, but I don't consider it like one of my income streams really. Like I have to charge something to kind of cover the time I'm not auditioning or not spending time with my family or whatever, like, you know, anyone would for, for a skill. Yeah, yeah. But um, it's not like I'm set up as a coach, like some of these kind of American coaches are. It's their, li- it's their lifeblood, you know, it's, it's what they rely on. Yeah. Um, I've very much got like a, I'm happy to help people for a fee, but it's not, I'm not trying to extort money from anyone kind of thing. And the yeah, Gravy for the Brain, it's worth um, mentioning, is, is I think it's the best resource there is on the internet for voiceover, uh, for people who, of all levels, really, who want to get into voiceover because there's like beginner intermediate and even advanced stuff like some of my best sessions have been the real technical ones where we really get into the technical nitty-gritty of um, of how to really excel in that top level as a voiceover artist as well as helping people right through their career and i mean i'm not saying that just pissing in my own pocket but like there are territory controllers from all over around the world who are all at the top of their game and they're all doing webinars like every week every month and putting it in this one big library so it's basically becoming like the youtube of voiceover where any kind of cover any kind of topic is covered in there somewhere by an expert and it's all free with just like one you know subscription membership which is cool um, but the really great thing is that we do live read-throughs every week there's someone doing a live read-through so you, you hop on Zoom get in there and you read a script and you get live feedback from the group and from the, the person running the, the thing and I think that's the best way to progress as a voiceover artist is is doing the work is you know having a read like you're doing an audition and then getting direct feedback on that and having another go with it because the trouble with auditioning is it's great practice but you don't actually get any feedback never you never get feedback uh, and you also run a a video podcast as well is that right that's right yeah i've got um, a video podcast on my channel called vo life where i much like you actually chat to sort of you know other voiceover artists um as well as agents and uh, producers um just about um how they got to where they are and you know they're what basically they're value adds um to the industry again it's this part of this whole sharing of knowledge um thing that i i have um, and I think is really healthy in the industry as a way for us to all to collectively kind of get better. I mean, I kind of do it from the perspective of, you know, whenever you teach something, you get a little bit better at it yourself. And so I, you know, I, and I find that to be absolutely true as well. So, uh, yeah. Excellent. We'll definitely go and check that out. That's VO Life. And uh, where is that, Toby? YouTube.com slash Toby Ricketts. Awesome. And as usual, I'll put any links in the show notes, which are available at www.voiceovertalks.com. A question that I ask all of my guests, do you have any really embarrassing moments in your career? Hopefully <laughs> ones that you can look back now and laugh. Yes, there are a couple, actually. They're both from a similar time that I had in radio when I was working at sort of the, the biggest radio network um, in the country here in New Zealand. And um I was a sound engineer there, um, and there's two incidents that kind of uh, stick out because I was a sound engineer, as you know. So I was sort of working in the back end in the uh, digital computer system that plays out stuff over the air. And um, one day we went to the studio and we had these digital carts. So that's like a number. It would reference an audio file, and the on air system would just pick out each of those carts and then play it on air. And one day a copywriter came in and said, oh, we just need to record some um, work parts. So we, we called up a client and basically talked to them about their business for about 45 minutes, recorded the whole conversation, including everything. And then it was like work parts. So we'd be like, right, save that to the system, go away, have coffee. And I think it was on a weekend or something. Anyway, we found out the next day that that was actually on a live cart number. 
and that it had played in its entirety <laughs> on about three ad breaks <laughs> and sent the whole system completely out of whack because it wasn't 30 seconds long. It was 45 minutes long, full of... And, and, no, and the funny thing was, it was right at the stage where, where lots of people had lost their jobs and everyone was doing two jobs. And so no one had noticed because they didn't have the radio on in the office. Oh, no. <laughs> and the system was basically running automated. <laughs> it was just so embarrassing that this, this stuff had gone out. And there was another one where I was just starting to um, get into, into voicing commercials at this radio station. And I was running the studio and it was a Friday. Everything had to be done last minute. And so we were just churning out these ads and there was an ad. Christchurch in Canterbury is like one of the most rugby mad cities in the world. Like everyone loves their rugby. The local teams called the Crusaders there and they were like just hugely popular. Everyone knew who they were and was rooting for them, etc. And they had a big game coming up the next week and one of their star players was called Aaron Major, but it was spelt M-A-U-G-E-R. Morga, right? You're saying it phonetically. And I wasn't into rugby at all. <laughs> and I just wanted to get stuff through on Friday. And I didn't know that his name was pronounced Major. So basically, I recorded this ad talking about Aaron Morga, Aaron Morga, Aaron Morga. And it played all weekend over this oh, rugby no. mad station to a rugby mad uh, city where people would have been swearing at their radios <laughs> no. and throwing them against the wall because I kept saying Morga instead of Major. So that was, again, a little bit embarrassing because I obviously didn't research my, uh, my, my names correctly. Most of the stories that I've heard <laughs> so far have been kept within the booth it's it's good to know that, that it does sometimes happen and exactly. does go out of the booth yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> Toby for you what's the hardest thing about working uh, as a voiceover artist I think um, working as a voiceover artist, you never really have time off. Like I, I have heard of voiceover artists saying, right, that's it. Three weeks, I'm going to be offline. I'm going to go somewhere and do something. But I think realistically, to service your clients the best you can, you always need to be available. Because if your voice is representing their brand or their product and they need you because they need to do some kind of action, then they're relying on you to be able to record that. And not just record that, but record that and make it sound like the work you did before. Maybe do a pickup. So whenever I travel, I've got to dedicate at least a couple of hours every day when I'm traveling to getting back to emails, doing auditions on the road, you know, never really sleeping because you know, you're always waiting for that call for someone that, that needs something. And you've got to take your gear everywhere with you as well. And you know, most of us, um, when we are away from our studios on the the road somewhere recording in some hotel room or something do you ever like you know build things out of um out of duvets and ironing boards oh, yeah. and and whatever happens to be lying around because we've all done it we've all been <laughs> there in the hotel room when we have to get this gig to the client and i'm so fascinated by this art of building like pillow forts um in in hotel rooms that i started a group called pillow fort studio gallery on facebook and uh, it's basically a place for people to go and share tips on how to construct the perfect studio um, when you've got limited resources on the road and uh, share photos of your wonderful creations. So I hope you'll join me at Pillow Fort Studio Gallery on Facebook. Plus, the fact that I'm in New Zealand here puts me kind of at a benefit with time zones because, you know, first thing in the morning, I'm servicing my East Coast and West Coast American clients in that order. And then I basically get the middle of the day off because everyone's sleeping, uh, including Europe. And then I go back down to the studio and work from probably from like 8pm till sort of midnight or 1am sometimes because that's when everything lights up in um, in Europe and and also the UAE. Kind of having an unusual time of the day to work but that really suits me. Like I find, you know, my family goes to bed relatively early so I come down and, and do my thing down down here in the studio and I get to spend time with them in the middle of the day. So it's, it's kind of a, a win in that sense. But that can be challenging for some people is to be available at the times when it's not that sociable sometimes. But I think what really helps is if you if you love what you're doing, mm. then it never feels like work, does it? Absolutely. That's the key. That's that that's the 
I say to all my students is like, just do the thing that gives you joy, find a way to make it work, and eventually it will pay you. And then you don't have to work ever again in your life. You Absolutely. Know, there's, there's never yeah. a day where I wake up and think, oh, I've got to work today. You know, every day I wake up excited for what's to come, you're excited for the projects you're working on, you're excited for what you don't know might come through throughout the day. So I think as long as you love what you're doing, yeah, exactly. like you said, you, you very rarely can actually take yourself fully away from it. Mm. If, if you love what you're doing, then it, it helps. But I think it's still important to, you know, try and get that time away. Mm. But even, mm. I, you know, I say that myself, if we go away on holiday or anything like that, I've always got my gear with me on the road and you're always checking your emails. And, and if there's an audition that comes through or, or a client needs a job doing urgently, like you said, it's very difficult to say no to that. Uh, absolutely. And I always remember the story that um, my old mate Joe Cipriano, uh, the, the voice of Fox News uh, in the States, who he's, which he's been doing for the last 15 years. But he said he got that gig because um, they gave him a call because they said, oh, our regular voice has gone on, on holiday for two weeks and we can't get him to record. So do you mind stepping in for, for this week? <laughs> and then suddenly he's oh, the amazing. voice of Fox News. <laughs> and he's probably earned millions and billions of dollars from, from that other guy going on holiday. The guy that took his two weeks off is kicking himself. Exactly. So you're never sure what's going to... I mean, that's the great thing about voiceovers. You're never sure what's going to turn up in your inbox next. Um, that's the really exciting thing for me with voiceover as well is that every day you come down and it's like you've got invites to this or there's this audition that's come up and it allows you to really sort of you know try out all these different voices and uh, and just you know go for that work i really enjoy the chase um of of new work so yeah it's 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 very rewarding my next question is sort of going back to uh, some of the pay-to-play sites. They're gaining huge grounds in the voice of a marketplace today, and some love them and others hate them. I know we've touched on them previously, but I'm keen to hear your thoughts in general on them and the recent shift towards this type of online casting versus the traditional methods. So I've always come from the pay-to-play side of things. That was how I first dabbled in voiceover, um, was having a Voices.com account back in 2010, I think it was, which is only a couple of years after they launched. And I dabbled with it for years and sort of, you know, would do maybe two or three auditions a year and hope that one of them would come off. And occasionally I'd get one and I'd get all this money for just doing voiceover, which I was I just like doing anyway. And it was like, this is amazing. So obviously that wave has grown and grown in popularity. And it's it's kind of, you know, what happened to the taxi industry with Uber has kind of happened or is happening with the voiceover industry. And so it's with the market, the way that our society is set up, the, the way that economics is set up in the capitalist um, system is that if there is a better way to do things in terms of the way money flows and clients flow, then it will go towards that, short of legislating against it, which is not going to happen. So I feel like the pay-to-plays is the way of the future. And I feel like they're actually doing a really good job of balancing the needs of their clients with the needs of the voiceover industry. Voiceovers are always going to go where the work is. That was agents, and it still is agents for a lot of people. Like, I think there, there is a, you know, if people go and put jobs on pay-to-play sites, there's a certain amount of work for them in sorting through the auditions and making the payments and dealing with the voice artist, et cetera. So there's still a role for agents to take over that work in the casting and, you know, the, the sort of logistics behind sorting through auditions, etc. So I think there is a situation where they can coexist. I think pay-to-play sites have been really good for voice artists like myself who have had a home studio for a long time, have a really good sound, and I enjoy working directly with clients because I really like building relationships with, with them, finding out more about them and sort of becoming their voice for certain things. I mean, some of the biggest voiceover jobs I've ever done have been through these pay-to-play sites. 
uh, for like national level sort of commercials in the, in the States and obviously international work um, comes through there as well. And many times it leads to much more work through those pay-to-plays or, or then outside the pay-to-play. So it's a very good way to get new work, um, I think. But I also have, you know, um, six agents around the world who are getting me um, work, you know, and I'm sending in auditions to them all the time. The, the trouble with a lot of voiceovers who come into the industry, like basically say, you know, I want to become a voiceover artist. Right. I've built my home studio. I've done some training. Now I'm ready to get an agent. <laughs> As if that's the only way to get work. When in reality, about maybe five or seven percent of my work comes from my agents, and about fifty percent of it is sort of like self-agenting, and the rest is probably pay to plays. So a lot of people see it as you know they are the gatekeepers to work in the industry, um, getting an agent. But um, more often than not these days, you know, there's more chance of getting work through the pay to play sites. I'd say, but that does mean that you are you have to invest in it financially um, because they have to run their infrastructure. They've got a business to run as well. And, and I think it, it, it's kind of a um, the way they charge for their sort of your know, premium level accounts, Voice One Two Three and Voices dot com. It's kind of a um, a threshold of you know how serious you are about getting into voiceover. Because if they just if it was free, there'd be all kinds of stuff on there. Like you know there would be you know people would be sorting through a thousand auditions, most of which had ground hum and were recorded in a bathroom somewhere. So there's definitely like a kind of a, a level of entry. And sort of coming towards the end here then, what advice do you have for anyone who may be interested in or who has dabbled in voiceover in the past but is really looking to take that next step into voiceover? I think building a, a small home setup, which can be as simple as just the voice recorder on your cell phone and some headphones, like at a very basic level, it's the ability to record yourself because voiceover is actually less about doing voiceovers and more about listening to voiceovers and listening to what other people are doing with your voice. And they're listening to your voice as it's coming out of your mouth and thinking, does it match that? It's like having control over the sounds you make. And the first way to sort of get into voiceover is to get access to that. So get some headphones, get a way of recording yourself and get used to the sound of your voice on tape. I really think, you know, for people who haven't yet become professional voiceovers, that that is the way to do it, is to just do it. Like find a way to record yourself, go to YouTube, find some great ads, transcribe them, write down the script. You have a go at doing the same voiceover and then play it back to see see what it sounds like. Does that sound like a, a proper voiceover? And then just, you know, go from there. Then look at, you know, getting some some training uh, through Grave of the Brain or through, you know, the, the multitude of coaches that there are online. And then, you know, looking at doing it in stages. It's not something, there's lots of people who think, you know, right, I'm going to be professional voiceover. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to focus on this. And it's like, no, no, no. To start off with, just do it in your spare time. Do it because it's a passion project. It's a hobby that sometimes pays you. And then you build and build and build that up to a point where suddenly you can say, well, actually, if I focused on this full time, I could, you know, double the amount of clients I had. And wow, suddenly I'm getting paid as much as I, as I was in my old job. It's, it's a little bit fraught, um, the path of becoming a full-time voiceover because there is a tipping point where you're suddenly so busy doing stuff on your hobby that it's interfering with your main work, but there's not quite enough in order to justify, you know, getting rid of your main work. So I was quite lucky in, in that I transitioned into it when I moved out of sort of Auckland and I did some house sitting um, for someone that needed a house set in the country. And so suddenly my uh, expenses, uh, my outgoings dropped substantially. So it was a great time to quit a job, um, moving out of the big city and just go, right, all I need to do is make 100 bucks a week. That's all I need to do to feed myself and to pay, you know, $50 rent or whatever. So that's a great place to start because then suddenly you've got all this time and you've only got to make a small amount off that time in order to keep it going. And then you just reinvest, reinvest, reinvest into training, into gear and into your memberships to, to pay to plays, for example. And it just kind of snowballs from there. Success breeds success. And that tipping point 
point that you mentioned. That's exactly what happened to me as well. I was working full time in my nine to five corporate job. And it got to the point where I was coming home from work and working four or five hours in the evenings doing work, was working every weekend doing voiceover work. Mm. And it got to the point where I started to earn a decent amount from it as well. So my employer at the time, they were really good. And I actually condensed my five days a week, my Monday to Friday into four days. So I did four Mm. long days, Monday to Thursday, which freed up the Fridays, which was great for about six months. And then it got to the point, as you said, that tipping point where I couldn't give my full commitment to my day job, my corporate job, and I couldn't give my full commitment to voiceover. Hmm. So at that point, I knew I had to make a decision. And that's when I made the decision to leave and do voiceover full time. And I haven't looked back since, but you really have to want it because to get to that tipping point where you are able to support yourself and your family by doing just voiceover, to get to that tipping point, doing that alongside a day job takes a lot of work and a lot of energy. Mm. It has to give you energy, really, doing voiceover work, because if it if it, if it takes away your energy as well as your job, there's nothing left, mm. you know? So it really has to give you energy in terms of being inspired by the work you're doing and, you know, and the potential of being able to do this full-time in the future. Um, I feel like, yeah, it has to give you energy, otherwise it just sucks the life out of you, basically. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. If, if you're just there for the money and you're not enjoying what you're doing, then you're not going to be able to sustain that long term, mm. at, at least enough to build up a decent client base. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, totally. What's the one thing you wish you had known when you started your career in voiceover? I think the yeah, the one thing that I that I wish I kind of would could tell myself, go back in time and tell myself, is that you can kind of project the image of being successful and confident even if you aren't successful and confident. Do you know what I mean? Like it's your, your, you can project your own reality and people have no reason to believe that's not true. So whether you go into a, uh, a session or something like, you know, and you're nervous as hell, it's the first session you've ever done with someone overseas over Source Connect and you're just, you know, crapping your pants, but they don't know that. They just assume that you're a professional voiceover at the top of your game. So why would you do anything different from that? So don't automatically assume you have to apologize for everything and, and you know, um, and, and take the hit. Just, just own it and be the most confident and professional person you can be. That's some amazing advice, and, and not only just for voiceover as well, but particularly if you are starting out in the industry, I think that's a fantastic piece of advice to take away. My last question then, Toby, what voiceover goals have you set yourself for the coming year? Well, I've always been a real fan of big, hairy, audacious goals, BHAGs, as they're called, where you basically set this thing in the horizon, which is just a huge, unobtainable, you know, ridiculous goal. Um, the, the corporations have had them uh, throughout the years, like, uh, you know, um, Starbucks is that every shop is a Starbucks, um, <laughs> which is ridiculous. You know, it's like, well, that, before, that just wouldn't <laughs> function. Like, what are you guys thinking? Like ambition. And, um, you know, Microsoft's one was, to, you know, for every home to have a computer. And it's like, well, they did that and, and not much time at all. But it seemed ridiculous at the time, you know, everyone having a computer. So, so I like to set myself these goals. And my first sort of one when I was on the voiceover ladder was to make a full-time living from voiceover. And I mean, that happened in about half the time I thought it was once I really set my mind to it. Then I wanted to do a like a national level US commercial, which which happened. And I, it's difficult to set them because you think, well, like what, you know, it's got to be kind of achievable. Otherwise, there's no point. So, you know, but my next one is I've kind of revised it down a little bit, but I want to make 
like at least half a million US dollars in a year of voiceover. Wow. Because I think it's possible. It was a million, but then I thought, I don't really want to work that hard. <laughs> <laughs> That's just lazy, Toby. Come on, where's the ambition? I feel like it's possible. <laughs> I feel like it's possible, but I, I, I yeah, I, I've revised it down because I realized I'm actually not that fussed about money anymore because um, I've, I've built a house here in the, in the wilderness and it's like, well, what would I spend it on? But I kind of want to see if that's possible from the industry. And I, I feel like it is with the right setup and the right attitude and doing the right accents and having the right profile. You know, it's like lining up all those things. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't, we'll, we'll see what that, how, how I go with that over the next year and, um, uh, and whether it feels right. Otherwise, I'll change to another big goal, really. What an amazing goal. And I wish you all the best with that. I certainly don't doubt that you will <laughs> succeed with that. I mean, some of the stuff that you've been doing and the awards that you've been winning and the clients that you've been working with, you really are at the top of your game. Oh, thank you. Toby, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk with me today. I really appreciate it. No problem. You've been really insightful and you've given some fantastic advice here. So, thank you very much indeed fantastic it's been my pleasure Scott that was the incredibly talented Toby Ricketts if you'd like to find out more about him you can visit tobyricketsvoiceover.com or you can find him on Instagram and Twitter via at Toby Ricketts and they'll list all of the other links discussed in the show notes available at voiceovertalks.com where you can also find more information on the series be sure to subscribe to the podcast where there's a new episode every single week and to join in with the discussion and find out more about each week's guest please consider joining the Voiceover Talks Facebook group which is just voiceover all one word talks on on Facebook, and I'll see you next week.